So we are following along the work of the Lord and the building up of his church in the book of Acts. And we were last week on the island of Cyprus. Uh, north they go, the disciples to Asia Minor, what would today be southern Turkey. And so as they're making their way to the port city of Antalya, and then a few miles inland to a place called Perga, in a modern-day Antalya that's in the province of Turkey, um, then to Poseidon, Antioch. That's the, the course of this that they are going through. And so it's amazing how Luke has told us of several occasions in which Paul himself has preached. That is, he spoke of how he preached in Damascus, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Syria, uh, on the island of Cyprus as we heard even about last week, but he hasn't yet told us, that is Luke, exactly what Paul was preaching. And so again, as we've already said previously in uh, another section of Acts, you're going to get two sermons tonight. You get one from Paul, and you get one in an effort to explain to you what Paul is doing. And so it's his first recorded sermon uh, in the book of Acts here in Acts 13. And as I'm reading his sermon, um, I, I want you to just have in your mind this uh, idea that as the gospel is presented, um, it will be, uh, there will be opposition to it. There will be opposition to it, but then there will also be those that the Lord uh, surely blesses by the preaching of his word. I think it's a false notion that sometimes the church believes, well, just go preach. And it will accomplish uh, salvation. It does. But it also uh, stands with it that the, uh, there will be those who stand in opposition to the preaching of the word. And so we see that on display. But all the while, there's an underlying theme in addition to that, that the Lord himself is uh, orchestrating uh, his perfect plan. We closed out, didn't ask her to pick that hymn. Why was I made a guest? You just sang. And if that's not a part of the fundamental view that you have about salvation, um, it needs to be corrected. Because I think there's a notion in all of us that we were worthy of being invited to be a guest, at least in terms of comparing ourselves to others. Well, long sermon. Uh, follow along. Don't fall asleep in Paul's sermon as I read it this evening. So beginning at verse 13. Uh, for us, God's people. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophet, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, said, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. 
And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, the man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to his, the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let the Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed, and from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And they went out, and the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But with the Jews saw the crowd. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, 
it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to uh, just grasp some very basic matters pertaining to the gospel, certainly. But all the while seeing it how it is that you are a God who is orchestrating by your good design, your good design, a perfect plan to bring about life eternal to those who have been appointed unto life. We ask this that we, your children, would marvel again at our own gospel knowledge of how it is that we've come to believe and have put our trust in Christ. Father, we would um, see the story and respond well to how it is that we've been made yours. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, there will be opposition to the gospel um, all the while knowing that this is under the subset of how it is that we have a sovereign God who's orchestrating his plan of salvation. But we need to understand a few things about the gospel in order to even note that there might be uh, opposition to it. First of all, we see for the vast majority of his message, that is Paul's 16 to 37, we see the gospel content. We see the gospel content. There's a brief history, certainly, of Israel, of how they were a chosen people. He describes there they were preserved, they were protected. Uh, they, they spoke of how there was a faithful king, that is, King David, uh, from whom would come one even more and perfectly faithful, the heir, that is, in verse uh, 22. Uh, and then there's this greater son who is coming, the promised son and the heir. And so that's kind of a brief backdrop to what then is picked up in verse 26 to 37, how he shows that Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ. It seems obvious, but I think sometimes uh, when we find ourselves uh, fumbling and stumbling in what to say to people or ask questions of folks, if you could remember this, I think it would go a long way. Christianity is Christ. Uh, we all want to debate and discuss oftentimes uh, various aspects. The very focus is not on Jesus' teaching, but upon himself. You know, I think a lot of times there's a, he was a great uh, moral example, and yes, he set for us all a, a good and right example, um, but it's about him, his person, his life, his death, his resurrection, the whole story of the gospel is about Jesus. And so Paul shares about the death there in 27 and 28 and 29. This one that they did not uh, do that which they sh should have done, but they were fulfilling scripture. And they found him no guilt. 
but he was put to death. And then it goes on to speak of his resurrection in 30 to 32. So as he thinks about, does Paul, as he's speaking to this audience, again, this is fresh stuff. This is not us. That Sometimes I think we've grown uh, sleepy to the very essence of the content of the gospel. That the Lord Jesus himself was sentenced for sins that he did not commit. The text says they found nothing in him and no grounds for execution and yet they executed him. And so the reference to him dying on a tree is the connecting in this Old Testament idea that to die, uh, to be placed on a tree is a divine curse. But the irony of the beauty of the gospel is the very thing that the, the system says was a curse from God, was a blessing from God, even unto we who believe the gospel. So here he is, this innocent person suffering for um, those of us who are guilty as a result of the fall, the curse. He was buried, he was raised, and Paul is again making the case that the very resurrection of David's descendant was predicted. And you go, well, where's that? Well, there in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, Isaiah, subsequent there at the end of 34, and then 35, Isaiah 55, and then again, Psalm 16. All of these references, uh, because David did actually decay. So the very reference that's found in those Psalms is not ultimately referring to David, but to Christ himself. And that's where we find the New Testament preachers taking Old Testament reference in context and applying it to the greater story of the gospel itself, that Jesus himself is the one who died. And so... We understand a couple of things as he's laid out this kind of history lesson and pointing to uh, the very lesson of Paul. And there's a couple of things I would just note. First is that Jesus Christ is the climax of all biblical history. I'm not suggesting that every rock of scripture you turn over and you find Jesus there. However, I think we need to find Jesus more than we are apt to particularly in the Old Testament, as we think of him as prophet, priest, and king. We often read the scriptures in the Old, especially, and go, wasn't David a great fill-in-the-blank warrior? Wasn't he a, a good king? He was an imperfect king, but him as a king pointed to the greater king. All of the ideas of prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament are intended to point forward to a biblical understanding of Christ. And so what he does is Paul takes him through a little mini Old Testament lesson, talking about the patriarchs and the period in Egypt and the exile, the wilderness wandering, and all of this from the judges through Samuel, first king, Saul. It's a history that God is orchestrating all the while to culminate in the coming of the Messiah. That's one of the beauties of this historical redemptive lesson that Paul is laying forth for them, that the gospel, that is, Jesus of Nazareth, his actual historical figure, lived and died in Jerusalem. That this man is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament imagery, types and shadows of the Testaments itself. Of Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things that sometimes get a little bit hazy. And we go, wait a minute, might I stop and ask the question, oh, do I see Jesus when I'm reading the Old Testament. The second thing that we need to see is God who raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead and 
basically vindicates who he is, that is Christ. He talks about the crucifixion, the scandal of the Jews, what they had done to take his life, though he was not in any way guilty of any wrongdoing, but God raised him from the dead. You can't keep down the very purposes of God. And though they thought they were doing that which would accomplish their purposes to downplay this one who was calling himself Messiah and God himself, and we have to squelch this. They were very much accomplishing the purposes of God. How beautiful is this demonstration? And so as I, I thought about that, I reflected upon the content of the gospel. There, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. To talk with somebody, a simple question is, tell me, do you know Christ? And again, if they find themselves, if you find them in answering these things just about kind of the mechanics of who he was rather than what he has done in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, then maybe they don't know the very gospel itself. And so as I think about this, too often we've defined the gospel in modern terms uh, in the modern church. Let me tell you what I've experienced. The complicated thing is, that would mean that the gospel has all different kinds of answers because every experience that any one of us have enjoyed is in many ways completely different than the one seated next to you. And so the gospel is not what I have experienced. The gospel is not that I've had a changed life. You hear that a lot of times. That's not to say that if you have come to know Jesus that your life won't be changed. But if all you can talk about is a changed life, I used to do these things and now I don't. And you can have no sense or explanation of how it is that I have come to know Christ. So, you know, Whatever it may be, an email changed my life, a, a something I used to do, I used to be this, a certain drug changed my life. You know, all kinds of stuff can change one's life. But that misses the whole point of the gospel. These are not the gospel. These are, these are many things that do change people's lives. But the good news, the message of salvation, the story to Steve, the story to your friend, the story to a family member is, tell me about Jesus. What do you know of who he is and what he has accomplished and what he did in history? And it has nothing to do with you individually. It's what he has done fully and completely. That's what Paul is saying. He simply tells the story. And in simply telling the story, we will see the response in just a few moments. He preached this message about who is Jesus. That's the content of the gospel. Let us never lose sight, kind of going back to what is the basics. Uh, when you're struggling to talk to somebody, it's hard. I don't know why it's so hard. When you're getting these kind of big idea conversations with people, can you tell me a little bit about Jesus? Um, that will often uh, be a telling uh, answer. Um, not have you been changed, not has this happened. Tell me something about Jesus that you've come to know because you know him. So that's the gospel content. Just in a couple verses, the second thing, we see a gospel commitment there in verse 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What does he want them to do with this knowledge of who Jesus is? 
that yes, God is a God of history and that he's in charge, that God has promised that Messiah is coming, that this Jesus, that is this Messiah, the one whom you crucified in Jerusalem, God raised from the dead. And verse 38 starts by, let it be known, therefore, this idea of do something with this that I have said to you. And some translations actually have therefore, and you ought to ask, why is therefore, therefore? Because he's drawing a conclusion. Those are the facts, undeniable truths about who Jesus is. But as you come to these verses, the very kernel of the sermon is, therefore let it be known that through him there is forgiveness of sins proclaimed. And the word freed, everyone who believes is freed. It's the same word really as justification. It's the same word of being declared not guilty that we find in Galatians or, or Romans. Justification, being right with God, being set no longer at enmity with God, but being made right with God. Everyone who believes is freed from all the things that obedience to some law that was set up as a fabrication of believing somehow that if I could keep it perfectly, then I will be free. But freedom is not found in that. It's only bondage. And so he's saying here that we're not justified by obedience to the law plus faith in Christ. That's what Paul's saying in the real kernel of this sermon. We're not justified in the sight of God. We're not made right in the sight of God by obeying the law, by obeying the commands, and then also having faith in Christ. That's not his point because the law cannot justify. Only Christ can justify. Everyone who believes, it says there in verse 39, everyone who believes, Jew, Gentile, all of humanity, this universal offering is understanding that I can be made right with God because of Christ. And so as we think on these things, do you see what Paul's saying? The greatest thing that you need to know, the greatest thing that I need to know, the thing that you need to know in summary is the forgiveness of sins. That's the great impediment. And in God's providence, I just happened to be sitting with him today. Life can be very difficult. And yes, there's lots of things that weigh us down. But the greatest thing that should weigh any person down is not their great debt or the relationships that they've broken or the what am I going to do with the rest of my life. The question is what are you going to do in eternity? But there is a God that we have to stand before and give account of what I've put my trust in. And that is the greatest thing that we must know, that we are forgiven our sins, our disobedience, our rebellion, our enmity with God because of Christ. That's the gospel. And whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And so that's the, the commitment, if you will. And then lastly, the gospel response, 42 and following. And so we see a couple of responses always in every circumstance, whether you're speaking to someone, as I prayed for Rachel earlier, there's, there's this beautiful aroma of Christ in that woman. But there's going to be two responses. Don't think everyone's going to go, oh, how sweet she smells. Uh, in so far as gospel, it will divide. That is the case. Twofold response, a response of faith 
and a response of unbelief. And that's what we find here. You're either with Christ or you're against him. You either say yes to the gospel or you say no and reject it out of hand insofar. And you think about why do uh, why the gospel might be rejected. Well, there's an interesting account here. As you think about this historical situation, both Jews and Gentiles initially respond favorably. It says there in verse 42, and they went out and the people begged that those would come back the next Sabbath. And uh, the gospel seems to be taking hold of the city and Jewish members are coming to the synagogue and they're, they're, they're hearing this Christian message, but they turn away from it there in 45. Why? Jealousy, I think Luke says. And we can remember that Paul's message there in the, in the synagogue was mainly to Jews talking about our fathers in verse 17, showing that Jesus uh, is the Christ of Israel. There's, a, there's something deeper going on here with these who responded uh, in rejection. You do not consider yourselves worthy of the gospel, it says. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. What is he saying there? What he's basically saying, in effect, to these Jews, uh, he, he says they don't consider themselves worthy of it. Kind of an ironic twist. The Jews found the freeness of the gospel this offer of you do not need to keep the law of Moses. This offer that you do nothing. They thought it to be insulting, in effect, is what he was saying. You mean we don't do something to merit this called good news? And so the gospel in this instance demanded from them that they would admit they're not worthy because they wanted to offer their obedience to the law of Moses as if that would then qualify them. And so they, in effect, reject the simple free offer of the gospel because they say it's, it should cost us something. And, you, you know, you get what you pay for, that phrase that we often hear used, and often that's not a good phrase when you hear it used. They're thinking that if they can add something to this very story he's just told, then they would be... Uh, willing to commit themselves to it because they have participated in obedience to the law of Moses. And so he basically says, uh, you cannot add to Christ. And that's a great gospel sentence. One writer put it this way, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. They believed they needed Jesus, or they would understand, but they needed to obey the law, that there was some worth in them, and then they would believe this gospel is what he's after. So that's why they reject it in terms of the Jews, it seems. But then why is the gospel accepted? There in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. There's nothing in them. The text is clearly saying not all who believed were appointed for eternal life, it says, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. There we go. That's our Presbyterian doctrine. Um, God himself has appointed those who will believe, and then they will believe. The idea of predestination, that so many hearts are, are not unlike the unbelieving Jews. It said that just doesn't seem right, that God outside of us could uh, appoint uh, me unto eternal life, and then I believe. I want to believe of my own merit, and then I'm appointed unto life. That's not the gospel. That's Americanism. That's 
something else because we want to add to it as stock put. Some commentators are offended uh, by this classification. Many question the very point of God ordaining those who will believe. If you're here tonight, and I gather almost everyone, I suspect, here in this room is of Christ. There was nothing you did. You were appointed to believe. You've been ordained to believe. You've been invited as a guest. And that hymn, thank you for selecting it, reminds us, not anything in me. And that's the gospel response. And it's got to remain even unto hoary hairs, which we sang. All the way into the end, never get to a place where you believe somehow you have figured this out, Maury. No. For all the remaining days, we come like these who believed. I am unworthy. I've been appointed. And I have been given a gift. That's the idea behind this. And so as I close, just remember these things as you go forth from this place. Um, if you're a member of this church, um, if you know your Bible, if you know your catechism, um, if you know your hymns, but do not understand who Jesus is, all those things mean nothing, is what the text is driving home. Those are great. Those are wonderful. But they're a response to knowing Jesus. I want to know him more. Therefore, I'll train my children in catechism. I want them to know Christ. I, I want to know the hymns more. But it, it, it's a desire of mine to know Jesus more. These are all um, driven out of a desire to know the forgiveness of Christ alone all the more. And so also I would say about evangelism, talk about Jesus. Just go forth and say, this is the one I know. Do you know him? And not just a knowledge of his historical existence, but do you actually know him? Can you tell me something about him that has come to meaning, have great meaning in your life? So with that in mind, Paul's first sermon, may the Lord bless his sermon and this sermon in such a way that we would go back to some of the basics that we may have forgotten some time back or at least haven't emphasized in a while. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this one that you've raised up to be an instrument to the Gentiles. Would we find there ever to be a growing humility in our understanding that is not in us not believing somehow we must add to the very work of Christ, but that salvation is always your work and salvation is always from the Lord. We would speak of these things, having come to rightly understand the truth of the gospel itself. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name.